So very popular belief we have in our culture today, and a lot of people say this, and you know, any background a person will say, yeah, you know, people, every person, no matter what, is a child of God. As the great theologian and philosopher Dolly Parton put it, yeah, that was a joke. And some of you got it, and some of you didn't. We're all God's children, is what she says. And the notion is we're God's children. Uh, it's, it's just been taken by everybody. I've heard people say it all the time. And it's not taken without any qualification or reflection or anything like that. And so when someone says that, it, it's actually not so clear because when they're saying the statement, people want to say in some sense, Jesus being the Son of God, he is in a different status. Like he's a child of God in a unique sense, the Son of God in a unique sense than we are. And we want to affirm this. This is what the Irish musician Jimmy Core put it. Really got some, some high-level quotes this morning. If we are all God's children, then what's so special about Jesus? So there must be a sense in which I'm a child of God that's different than Jesus being the Son of God. And in our culture, we have to realize we use words father, son, child. We use them in a variety of different ways, with a variety of different meanings. There's biological, there's metaphorical meanings. There are all sorts of meanings. And that was actually true when the Bible was being penned and written. There were different understandings of father, son, and all these sort of things. So today we would use, I mean, father very loosely in our culture. So we would say that Steve Jobs is a father of Apple. Henry Ford is known as the father of the American car industry. We use father in a very loose sense like that. It's something that's responsible for something, responsible for creating or producing something. We can say that's a father of that in some sense, a father of electricity, all this sort of thing. And with regard to human beings, God can be a father in that sense because he is a so our source. Indeed, he's a source of all things. God's the creator of all things, visible and invisible, as Colossians chapter 1 says. He's created all things, so he's a force. He's, he's, a, he's a force. Don't, that's two Star Wars-like. He's a source. Force and source. Thanks. see how they did that? He's a source of all things. And so he's the father of us in that sense. This is how uh, Paul puts it in the book of Acts, Acts 17, 28 to 29. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets, the secular poets have said, this is what Paul's saying, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So, in this sense, this he's saying God produced us. He, he is a creator of all things. And actually, when it says offspring here in Acts 17, it says genos, which means descendant or from. And so in that sense, God is our father, also in the same way that Steve Jobs is the, the father of the, of the Apple phone and the iPhone. And so, yeah, so the, the God is a source of us. But I, I love the way, another highbrow um, quote here, Yondu from Guardians of the Galaxies 2. Who's seen that movie, Guardians of the Galaxy 2? Yeah, so this guy named Yondu says this to a Star-Lord. He says, he may have been your father boy, but he wasn't your daddy. And he means that of this, this, this character who has this like tyrannical evil father that killed his mother and had no relationship with his life. And he actually is trying to save this guy from his real father, his biological father, who's trying to kill him. And he says, yeah, hey, he may have been your father boy, but he wasn't your daddy. The point he's trying to say here, he's not a theologian, but the point he's trying to say is just because someone's involved with producing you, that doesn't mean you have a close and personal father-son relationship with them. 
That's why he says, hey, he may have been your, your father boy, but he wasn't your daddy. And so, yeah, that's so. So someone may may be produced by God, be that he's God's the creator of all things, but God may not be your daddy. And so, what we're going to see here in Romans eight twelve through seventeen is that only believers in Jesus Christ, those who trust in Jesus, they have that close father son relationship with the God of the universe. They can call God their daddy, as we'll see. So let's look at this in our verse by verse study in Romans, starting at Romans eight twelve. Says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. We are debtors, he says, right there. We are not debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So when the Bible calls us debtors, like you're like, why? I thought we're saved by grace. What's all this language of debt? You know, that sounds kind of weird and transactional. Well, the simple point that Paul is trying to say is that, like as the hymn captures, Jesus paid it all. So all to him we owe. That's the idea here. And so Jesus paid an infinite price to save us. He sacrificed himself, an infinite person, taking an infinite amount of wrath on the cross. He died for us. He made the infinite sacrifice. And so we have an infinite debt to him. Now, God being gracious doesn't expect us to pay that back. Of course not. But we, we do have a debt to God. And so we, we live a life of gratitude and thankfulness for Jesus. We live a debt of gratitude, if I could use it that way. And so that's what he's saying here. So we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful what he's done. And the more we, we connect up to Jesus by trusting him, praying to him, reading scripture, living our life, following after Christ, the more spiritual life and joy we get. This is what he says in uh, Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live if, if by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul's point here, hey, if you play stupid games, you get stupid prizes. If one lives a non-Christian life according to the flesh, then you get spiritual death, spiritual disease, and sadness. But if one lives according to Christ, according to the Spirit, and you're saved by grace, then you're going to find greater joy, greater happiness in Christ, following after Him, trusting in Him, living your life focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So everyone who's born again, everyone who believes in Jesus is saved. They're a son of God. They're a child of God. It says it right here. Now, if you, if you trust in Jesus, you're going you're to have a life led by the Spirit. You're going to have a transformed life. You're not going to be perfect. Don't understand this to be like, oh, you're led by the Spirit. I must be perfect. No, we're not led by the Spirit perfectly, but the Spirit transforms us. Christians don't live Perfectly, but they live differently. They live transformed lives. And so everybody who trusts in Christ has a transformed life. And then that means you are a child of God. Now that means that if, if you're not in this state, you're not a child of God in this sense. And the Bible confirms this all over that by faith in Jesus, only those who place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that is a child of God. That might seem harsh or rough, but this is what the Word of God says in John 1, 12 through 13. It explicitly says this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, or the will of man, but of God. So you're born again. If you're born again, Christian, you trust in Jesus, you're born again. You are a child of God. And that means not everyone is a child of God because not everyone believes in God. Not everybody is born again. Believers in Christ are the children of God, according to the Bible. 
Now, you may notice here it says that we are the sons of God. And you're like, oh, man, that sounds weird. It's kind of really gender exclusive, right? Language there. Why doesn't, why doesn't God use more gender inclusive language here? What's the deal? So, for instance, the NIV translation, it's a gender inclusive translation. It was done in 2011. This is how they translate the Greek. The Bible was written in Koine Greek. We can translate it today and know the meaning. But they, make it, they opt for a gender neutral translation. This is how they put it. For the same verse we just looked at. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So you, you see, the changing of the meaning of the NIV here, though, ends up stripping the Bible of a very powerful meaning for both men and women alike. You see, in the first century, Roman sonship was something that was only given to the males. And here, Paul has the audacity to give the, the power, status, and privilege of first century sonship, not just to men, but to men and to women, so that they have all the rights of a firstborn son that's given to the entire church, to all believers, male and female. So far from being gender exclusive, he's, he's using a masculine institution at the time, and he's applying it to women also, saying they have equal rights spiritually with males. So both men and women are heirs and have the same status and privilege before the same God. Now you think, okay, that's kind of, you know, Nate, come on. It's it's kind of sexist because it's still using this masculine language figure or metaphor rather than a feminine one. And that's probably why, to be honest, the newer NIV changed this language to make it more gender neutral just to children. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the right way to think about it, that God's being sexist here by, by putting this out here. Because what does the, I mean, the book of Revelation calls men and women the bride of Christ. Right. So, I mean, that feminine expression, it includes both men and women as well. And so the Bible's not being like, you know, biased here at all. It's including both men and women, both male, masculine and feminine metaphors. It's being even handed, if I can use that term. It's being even handed in how it's, it's spoken of. And, you know, it's funny. The NIV is, is inconsistent here when it translates uh, the bride of Christ in Revelation or the, the, it doesn't say the spouse of Christ. You know, this is a bride. And that's because you, you get rid of that, that rich gender language and you get rid of the fact that the picture that God's trying to paint for us in Revelation and here in Romans is that Jesus has his church. He is the husband and he, like a earthly husband, though better, is to lay down his life, sacrifice his life for the spouse, the church. And so the, this language, though people want to kind of erase it, the Bible is even-handed in its masculine and feminine language, and it, it has a special meaning that we can't erase or eradicate. We have to hold on to it because it has deep significance. And so the Bible, as I've said, already teaches that Jesus is the unique Son of God. So you might be confused looking at this. So why, how are we sons of God? What makes us and Jesus different? And there is a difference. We know there is a difference. Because in John 1.14, he says that Jesus is the only Son. He's also called us sons. So let's look at this. John 1.14. And the word became flesh, referring to Jesus taking on human flesh. He was in eternity with the Father, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the Father. Notice that? Only son. That's what he says here. Full of grace and truth. So Jesus 
is the only son of God, according to this text, in some sense. He is, uh, we would say, the only natural son of God in that, in that terminology. What's the son of a duck? A duck, right? So the son of God is God. And so the Bible confirms all throughout the Bible that Jesus is the son of God. He is God himself. Colossians 2, 8 through 9. Yeah, some of you got that. I saw <laughs> It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions. Not saying all philosophy, but according to like secular man thinking, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the, the whole fullness of deity, Godhood, the divine nature dwells bodily. So in Jesus, he, when people saw him walking on earth, the eternal, necessary person of Christ, who's divine, they would worship and call God. And if Jesus is fully God, and the Father is fully God, people say, well, doesn't that mean there's like two gods? Like there's many gods now? But no, the Bible teaches all throughout, very, very clearly, that there is only one true God. There are not many gods, a plethora of gods. There is one God. There is none before him, none after him. There is nobody but the one true God. And Isaiah 43, 10 says this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God swarmed, nor shall there be any after me. None before me, none after me. There's one God. God. <laughs> One God. So then, okay, how can Jesus be God and the Father be God? And this has been resolved by what's called the doctrine of the Trinity. That is biblical teaching that there is one true God who's spiritual, non-physical, transcends everything. This one true God. And in this one true God, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Person, we're all conscious. We would say, um, I say, I, me and my wife are going to the movies. I'm talking about two persons. So there's two, or there's three consciousnesses. There's three centers of consciousness, three persons in this eternal one true God. And you see this in John 10, 30 through 31. I and the Father are one. So if you're going to look at what God is, there's, there's three eyes and one what? There's three persons, one divine nature, one divine thing, one God, one divine being. I and the Father are one. And if I said, I and my wife are going to eat a Mexican food after the sermon, right? I'm talking about two persons there. You wouldn't say, oh, there's just one, there's just one person. No, you're going to think there's many persons here. And what's interesting is the response of the religious leaders. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Now, if they were to say that he's one in purpose with God or they're one in agreement or they all get along, that was not, that did not require a person to get stoned in the first century. What got you stoned in the first century was claiming you were in one in being with God. You were God, essentially. That's what got you stoned in the first century. Not saying you agree with God or you're in the same purpose as God, but saying you share the very essence and nature of God. That would respond, that would cause a response like the Jews had here. And and so Jesus is the natural son of God in the sense that he is God and he is sent by the father to take on our sins, die for us. He, he's sent by the father and like a father son relationship, he submits to the father. He listens to the father perfectly, you know, probably much perfectly than any kid you have because kids don't always submit to their fathers. We know that, but he submitted perfectly to the will of the father. And some people have asked me before, well, doesn't a son imply that a father and a mother, you know, they procreated and then had a son together? So is that what happened with, with Jesus? 
And it isn't. It isn't because John 4.24 says that God is spirit. And those who worship him worship him in spirit and truth. And that Greek word doesn't mean that God has a body of flesh and bones, like he is a guy up in the sky or anything like that. No, that means that he is non-physical, immaterial, transcendent. He is spirit. He's not a physical object. God is not the sort of thing that can physically procreate like human beings. He doesn't have a body. He is spirit. God is spirit. And so when the, the Bible uses the word father, it is using it like a, an analogous or figurative sense that he is a unique uh, son of the father. And everybody does this when they read the Bible. Everybody uses father in a figurative way when it's applied to God. No one, no one, no one takes everything that an earthly father has and puts that on God in heaven, for instance. So my dad, for instance goes to the restroom. My dad feels the effects of aging. My dad gets very grumpy when the Dodgers lose. Very grumpy. He loves the Dodgers. He's from California. You know how they are, right? Not the Angels, the Dodgers specifically. And so, yeah, and my dad plays a lot of golf. Very, you know, and so, well, I'm not going to say, well, yeah, so that means that, that's how my, you know, that's how God in heaven is. No, no, that's not what it's, what it's getting at. No one takes everything about their, their earthly fathers and just tacks that right on top of their, the, 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 the father God. No one does that. And so everybody grants that the word father here is being uh, used in a figurative sense. But so what does the Bible mean when it calls us the children of God? What sort of sense is that getting at? And obviously it cannot be, it cannot be that we are the natural children of God because we are not God. We are totally different than God. We are a different type of thing than we're not a divine being at all. We're, we're a totally different type and species. And according to God himself, God is so different than anything else in creation, it's hard to compare him to anything. Anything at all. This is what Isaiah 40, 18 through 25 says. To, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman cast it, and goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol, will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who, who sits above the circle of the earth. He's beyond, God transcends everything. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. I hate grasshoppers anyways, but, you know, but he compares us to grasshoppers here. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when the, he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Nothing compares to God fully. It's, he, he can't be fully compared to anything in all creation. It's hard to compare him to anything we see around us. He's so far beyond us. He compares us here to like insects. It's weird. Grasshoppers in Isaiah. And that might be a little bit confusing because the Bible does teach we're made in his, in his image. 
Every person has you know, intrinsic value and worth because they're made in the image of God. And so, you know, God's created us and we have this, I mean, more, I mean there's, there's not zoos you know, for animals to watch people. We have dominion over the animals, not people zoos. At least I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah, so we have dominion over the earth like, like God has dominion over all things. So we're in some analogous way more similar out of all creation to God than any other thing any other animal, any other created thing. We're, we're the most similar to God. We're made in his image. We're reflective of him in some sense, in some analogous sense. So yeah, we, we are made in his image, but the, the thing that we and a grasshopper share in common is I am finite and the grasshopper is finite, but you see God is infinite. He is infinite. His, you know, you think of a bug. I mean, bug can't think of geometry or math or anything about just, there's not a lot of high level thinking there, right? And so our thoughts are so beyond that of a grasshopper, just as human beings. But what's amazing is that God's thoughts are even farther from us. We're finite. He is infinite. This is what Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. As the psalmist says that you can't even number God's thoughts because they're infinite. So when we're in heaven forever enjoying the beauty and the glory of God for forever, you and I, we're never going to get bored. Like sitting around like, when is this going to end? This is, people always ask me that. Are we going to be bored in heaven? Well, no, because all the things you think of TV shows and books and things you enjoy, they're a finite. But you see, God's not finite like that. God is beyond that. He's infinite and you never can. And a finite thing like you and I, we can never comprehend the beauty and glory and majesty of an infinite being. Far better than any golf game or whatever it is. And we have golf balls for either great. But you know what? You get bored of that after a while. You get bored of anything. But God is infinite. You can never fully comprehend him. You can never get bored of him. And so Paul goes on to say that, that this infinite, necessary, transcendent, spiritual being, this being that just is beyond our comprehension, beyond anything in this earth, so powerful, brought the universe into existence out of nothing, so powerful, so majestic. It is this God that we have the deepest and closest relationship with in Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So there's no fear with God. Not afraid of him punishing us anymore. Nothing like that. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the Holy Spirit is there reminding us that we are saved and secure, that he loves us. It's a reminder that we are going to heaven, that God's love will never be separated from us. And of children, then heirs, we inherit the glories that Christ earned for us. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Meaning, we, in this earth, we, we suffer for Christ in many ways, whether it's someone who says something mean to us because we're a Christian or whatever it is, but we will share in his sufferings, and so we will also share and be united in his resurrection. We have... Uh, a deep union with Christ in that way. Now, what Paul says in this verse, he describes the sense in which we are, the specific sense in which we are the children of God. He calls us the adopted. 
children of God here. We're adopted, and by definition, if you're adopted, you're not the natural children at that point. And we never could, like I said, we never could be the natural children because we just saw God is infinite and we are finite. And so, yeah, there's no sense. There's an infinite gap between us and God. We're finite, He's infinite. There's an infinite gap there. And so, but what's amazing is that God is so infinite and powerful, yet He chooses to adopt us and treat us just as a natural child. That's what he does when we have faith in Christ. He adopts us. So we, amazing about this is we are the adoptive sons and daughter of God. And we have this deepest, closest relationship with this infinite, transcendent God of the whole universe. And so that's, that's what Paul means when he says, Abba, Father. It's not some band in the 70s or whatever. No. Abba is, a, is an Aramaic term which can be translated as Daddy. Very intimate term. Or dear father. Either way you translate it, whatever way you take it to be, it, it just it indicates this deep, one of the closest relationships you can possibly have. I love how the great scholar and preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. Abba was a word lisped by a little child. Let us, notice the, let us notice the word cry. We cry, Abba, Father. It is a very strong word. Clearly, the apostle has used it quite deliberately. It means a loud cry. It, it expresses deep emotion. What then does it imply? Obviously, a real knowledge of God. God is no longer to be as a distant God. Even though you might think he is, he's infinite, he must be distant. He's not distant relationally to us. He is not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, doctrinally only. All this is possible to one who is not a child of God at all. Our worship and prayer are spontaneous. It is the spontaneity of a child who sees the Father, and not only spontaneity, but confidence. You know, you think of um, all the powerful, most powerful presidents, kings in the past. They have done you know, all these things to garner power and authority, and people to be frightened to even talk to someone who's in power, intimidated to talk to them in a time of inconvenience or interrupt them when they're doing something. People you know, get nervous about that. And when you think about all the kings and rulers, or maybe it's a celebrity you'd be nervous to talk to, whatever it is, right? God is far greater than any of those people. He is far more powerful, uh, infinitely beyond them and way more frightening in authority and power. He can end our lives like that. But what's amazing is the one person who can go to a king and a president anytime they wanted to at 4 a.m. over the smallest, most ridiculous thing is their children. And I, I don't know about you, but I can, I can personally uh, attest to this. My son he will wake me up for any issue at all. At two, three, four, five, six, seven o'clock in the morning. Literally anything, you know. And, you know, it could be, I'm coughing too much. Oh, I've got, like, he's like, I got a bug bite. <laughs> you know? he, will, he will, you know, oh, I was a little scared or I'm not sleeping. Any reason that he has to wake us up, he will use that reason and literally wake us up and make me crazy. <laughs> so, but, and so... My son has complete confidence and he's comfortable just literally waking me up for anything. And he knows that when he does that, I'm going to comfort him and put him back to sleep. And because we are adopted sons and daughters of God, we can call God our daddy anytime we want. This infinite holy God, we can call him our daddy 
and, and reach out to him at three in the morning when you're anxious, when you're scared, when you can't sleep because all these things are going on in your head. You can cry out to God at four in the morning and you just you, you wake up, you know, you just can't go to sleep and you're dreading work the next day or you're worried about all the million things that are going on in your life. God is our daddy and that means he is always there for you. No matter what it is, or what time it is. And I know uh, many people who think that when you have to pray to God, you have to go to God like some sort of like old English ambassador or statesman, you know, from the 1800s. Like, thouest, I beseech thee, thou knowest my ways. Will thee bestow upon me a mighty bounty? Oh, omnipotent Lord. You know, it's like this very, you know, you have to come to like, like God, like a little prince, like a, like, oh, hello, King, Messiah. You know, you have to like go to, you have like a prayer formula. Like, it's it got to be this perfect, you know, like Lordish, like prayer formula, you know, and you know, it's like, it takes a lot of pomp and circumstance to get that going, right? You really have to, you know, you have to like change the way you read. You know, I respect Shakespeare. I remember as in high school, I'm like, I'm like, I can't follow this at all. I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't read it. Don't follow my example. You should do your reading, kids, you know. So, but yeah, so we don't have to go to God like, you know, Frodo and the Lord of the Rings is some king or something. We don't have to go to God like some English ambassador and statesman, you know. No, we can go to God just with our deepest emotional cries without any formality. We don't have to. I mean, people can pray formally. The Bible has that. But you don't have to as a point. You can just, you know, reach out to God and say, you know, God, I need you. Please help me and strengthen me. You know, we can say, God, I don't know what I'm doing right now. This is... Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? I'm at the end of my, my rope here, God, and I don't know what to do. You know, Kenny, my son, will sometimes, uh, he won't even use words. What he does, and actually he was doing it back there in the service, so shows you this is a very common pattern for my son. Man, he's going to get so mad if he looks back in the sermon 15 years later. <laughs> I'm going to be in so much trouble. Um, so, yeah, but he, was in the, he, just, he just lies on the ground. He doesn't tell you what he wants. He lies on the ground, like on the ground, and he just cries. He doesn't even like, and what do you, what that, I, I, I said, Kenny, what do you need? And I figured out, he doesn't, he doesn't need anything. He wants me uh, to, to pick him up and to hold him and to comfort him. And, you know, we don't have to pray perfectly like Spock-structured robots. We can cry out to God in the deepest agony and guttural pain, and he will hold us through that. Because we are the adopted children of God, and we can cry out to him just like a little child on the ground, just kind of like screaming and pouting and just needs to be comforted. Now, even though I say that, there are still some people who are deeply uncomfortable with this fact that we are not the natural sons and daughters of God. They're just, um, just the very concept irks them. And uh, this, this New Testament teaching, this is what a New Testament scholar Burke says about this clear teaching throughout the Bible that we are not the natural sons and daughters of God. God's family comprises solely of adopted sons and daughters. There are no natural born sons and daughters in his divine household. The people just say, you know, you know, it, even though, yeah, it's, it makes sense, you know, we can't be infinite gods. It just rubs me the wrong way that I can't be his natural son or daughter. Like, you know, people feel like when that's taken away, they feel like, 
like a closeness from God is stripped from them. They feel like they had this feeling of being significant, of being like a, a literal son and daughter, and that, that that significance, that value, that identity is taken away. And so saying they're not the natural, I've, I've heard people complain about this a lot, it feels like that it's taking away their worth, their value, their significance, their identity. It's kind of like the Pinocchio concern. You want to be a real boy. You want to, you want to, and when you know, Pinocchio feels like he's just a puppet, the, the significance is drained from him. So what people, and I've actually heard people say that they feel like when they're not, and they're told they're not the natural son or daughter of God, they feel like their identity is being lost, that they're not worthwhile, they're not valuable. And I, I, I was presenting the biblical teaching to somebody, and this is what they said to me. This is, it feels like God's like this super powerful thing beyond us, and we're just like ants that he's crushing. Like, we're just like these ants kind of thing. And because he's so far above us, we're just like insects and ants and God so far beyond us. And, you know, there's two things I want to say about this. First, and this misunderstands the biblical teaching, but first is that if we take God and we bring him down to our level, we make him just like us, that detracts from the glory and beauty and majesty of God. God is, the, is a being worthy of worship. If we bring him down to our level and he's just like us in every sense, then he's not worthy of worship anymore. He becomes another finite being. He becomes another demigod or like a, just as powerful as a Marvel Avenger or whatever it is. We bring God down to our level, then he's not the greatest conceivable being. He's not maximally the highest good. And so we would say God, by definition, God is a being worthy of worship and God is a being worthy of worship only if he's not like us, only if he's the greatest and maximally great. And so we bring him down to our level and we detract from his glory, from his beauty, from his infinite power and amazement. Another thing is that this doesn't really understand that God, how beauty, how beautiful the institution of adoption is. It, it fails to grasp it. I mean, imagine this, an infinite being adopting you. We're finite. He's adopting us and treating us as, as, as if we are his own. And adoption is even such a beautiful and magnificent thing in our culture today. I've talked to many adopted parents and all of them have said they feel like there's no difference between their own children and their adopted children. It feels exactly the same. But you see, the coolest part about this in the first century context, the Romans significance here is being used here. And we know that because a, a Roman word for adoption here in the New Testament is being used. It's not using any Jewish sense of adoption. It's using the Roman first century context of adoption here when Paul says that we are adopted children. And you see, in the first century Roman world, if your natural son was a failure and a screw-up, you could say... All right, I disown this kid. This kid's no good. And he's no longer your child. He gets ripped off of the inheritance. He gets, you know, he's, he, you can disown your natural child in uh, first century Roman uh, institutions. But when you see, when you adopted a child in the Roman world, then that child is legally yours forever. You can never get rid of them. You can never disown them, no matter what. And that is a picture here that Paul is using to describe our relationship with God. We become the adopted children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful picture here for us. I mean, it's unbelievable. That means, as Romans 8 says, and we, we know in our hearts that the Spirit testifies to us that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. He, when, when he saves us, we are his forever. 
And that is because Jesus lived a perfect life in our place. He took the punishment we deserved on that cross. And you see what's amazing is that on that cross, the natural son of God, who's God himself, the father disowned him. Disowned him. Rejected him. That's why Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father had rejected his natural son so that he would never abandon us, his adopted children, by faith in Christ. And so this picture of adoption, which we have, is our greatest assurance. It means that we have, a, whether you've had a good dad or a bad dad, no matter what, we have the greatest dad for us there in heaven, our Heavenly Father. And He's never letting you go. He's never abandoning, abandoning you. He's always there for you. Even when everybody leaves you and forsakes you, the Bible says He will never leave you or forsake you. He is holding on to you. You have eternal peace, security in Him forever and ever. And that is such good news for us. Amen. Let's pray.